Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Glad Mike started out with the dad jokes. Means I can totally pass over the one I was going to share, even though I think it would take Mike's jokes to town. But welcome, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. Uh, it's good to be with you again, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Get to worship our God, um, and especially to finish up today our series on. The book of James. Kind of unbelievable, right? Finishing up another series on the book of James, a series we've been calling A Theology for Life. Because at least according to James, at least according to James more than any other writer of the New Testament, he's spoken of theology, our understanding of God and the things of God. Not as something that's meant to be collecting dust on a shelf, but as something that is meant to be worked out and worked into and put to work in all of life. And we've been seeing that each of these weeks. Even some of us, many of us, who've been walking together with one or two or three others to, to read this book, even, even as we've progressed through our series, we've seen this, that it's to be worked through through even life's trials and tribulations. That theology is something that we're to be doers of, as we're doers of the Word of God, not just hearers only. That that theology, that faith is meant to, to work, as James says. And that those who speak for God are to be those who first listened to God and humbled themselves before God. We've seen this every point in our series, and we're going to see it today, that we are to be those who patiently wait on God. That theology, our, our understanding of God and the things of God, is to meant, meant to extend into our patient waiting on God. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the final passage in the book of James, uh, where we'll be picking up today in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. And as we usually do, you could follow along with me as I read again from James 5, verse 7, all the way through to the end at verse 20. This is God's Word. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, 
but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. (coughs) Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today as we finish up this series on this little book, I pray that we would be those as James says, who who patiently wait on you to do what only you can. Who wait on you patiently, just as we patiently work for you. That our dependence on you to, to set this world right again would be seen in how we play our part and in how we pray, even as we do now, in the name of Jesus, as we long for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the farming crisis is finally making national news, and just this week, even Fortune magazine included an article written by Land O'Lakes president and CEO Beth Ford. An article in which Ford describes the, the crisis that has been building for some years now and has come to a head in the flooding of the Midwest. Have you seen it? Have you seen the news articles now being published uh, on, on, on what's been taking place in our part of the country? It, that Ford says that the flooding ha- has, has simply prevented farmers, quite simply, from farming. That they can't do their job. And the USDA has released the numbers to, to back it up, which show that even our own state, even Illinois, has planted less than three quarters of the amount of corn it usually does. And of the soybean crop, which we rely heavily on, our economy relies heavily on, less than half. Which has left many farmers plowing around the clock and praying to God. Because like one old 
farmer put it, taking, a, taking an old, old adage, as one old farmer put it, he said this, he said, you got to plow like it depends on you. And then you got to pray like it depends on God. You got to plow like it depends on you. You got to pray like it depends on God. Which in some sense is what James is saying in our passage today. When he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. These are the opening words. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then goes on to use this imagery of a farmer to make his point. Saying, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, he says, be patient. Be patient. But patient like a farmer. Which means patience isn't just nothing. It means plowing like it depends on you and praying like it depends on God. Or maybe more to James' point, maybe more in line with the New Testament generally, that patience is about depending on God in the work that we can do as much as it's about depending on Him in prayer for the work that we can't. Did you catch that? depending on God for the work that we can do as much as it's about depending on God for the work that we can. And that's what we're going to look at today. These two sides of a, of a farmer patience. These two sides of patience. First, that patience, the patience we're to have after James has really ripped into those who are living only for themselves, has been doing so for some chapters now, as he's really ripped into those who speak only for themselves, for those who, to those who do only for themselves. Now, as he turns to those who really want to live for God, this is what James says, that first, patience is about depending on God first for the work that you can do. And here we're going to pick up midway through verse 8 where James defines what it means to be patient as, at least in part, establishing our hearts. And and though he uses this hard language, I want to argue that the the language here, the, 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 the imagery here, the wordage here, actually harkens back to all that James has been saying for these chapters now. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be those who, 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 who work out your faith, not just live by faith with no works to, to evidence it. This is what James is saying when he says, establish your hearts in light of the coming of the Lord. That's what he says. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because Aslan is on the move. Because Jesus is going to return. So establish your hearts, which is really a call by James to focus one's attention wholly on Christ, entirely on Christ, and on the work to which his followers have been commissioned. This is what he means when he says, establish your hearts, because the heart is where it begins, but like everything, life is where it is lived out. Establish your hearts. 
So it's a call that every activity of the believer that the believer participates in would be taken as a heart opportunity to further establish the kingdom of their beloved king. You hear that? That every opportunity, every breath, every, every moment, every, every place that you find yourself in would be taken as an opportunity to expand the kingdom, to establish the kingdom of your beloved king. That's what it means to, to follow Jesus. Whether it's your job or your hobby or one of the dozen activities you get your kids wrapped up in. Whether, whether it's standing on the sidelines of the soccer game or, or standing backstage at the latest play. That, that even say that you, you, you're, you're, just, you're not content with, with how packed full life is and you decide to take up tap dancing for some reason. That even then, it's an opportunity to establish the kingdom of God. It's like an old friend of mine used to say who was still preaching down at the mission in his old age. Every Sunday, going down to the mission when he was asked why he didn't just give it up and give it over to some younger man. This old guy used to say, because... Because every week presents another opportunity to present those folks with my Savior. And his wife was gone and he didn't have any kids around. And he said, what else am I going to do? Retire to some beach somewhere? No, to take every opportunity to establish the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the beloved King. Every activity and opportunity. And not out of some misplaced sense of duty. No. But out of an adoration for the King. And an acknowledgement that He will soon return. That's why we're to be about the business of establishing the Kingdom. Because we love the King. And because the King is coming back. Which again starts by establishing our hearts rather than by allowing them, like the hearts of everyone around us, to be swept away by concerns for comfort or a life of luxury. Isn't in our society that so much what distracts us from the work of, of establishing the kingdom of the king? Trying to go after our own comfort, our own luxury. And isn't this what James has been confronting for at least two chapters now? Those struggling to live only for themselves, those struggling to speak only for themselves, to do everything only for themselves, he's been calling them to reorient their lives around God. Those who can't control their tongues, those in business who get swept away trying to turn a profit, those who who spend their lives taking advantage of others just to secure one more little square foot, one more level of financial security on the backs of everyone else. But now James turns to those who want to live for God, who have that eternal perspective, who've humbled themselves before God, and to them he says, establish your hearts, for the king is coming back. Even though living for God isn't easy. 
even though living for God is going to place you on a head-on collision course with those living only for themselves. But he says, because the king is coming back, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Establish your hearts. And similarly, he says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Why? So that you may not be judged. For behold, he says, the judge is standing at the door. The king is coming back. Do not grumble against one another, which basically is his way of saying don't pick fights with one another over the wrong things, over the non-essentials. Because we're supposed to be making much of what is essential of the great work that Jesus has done on our behalf 2,000 years ago, that a, a, a son, the Son of God was born, a Son of Man went to a cross to die for us to make it possible for the Son of Men to become sons of God. So don't make much of, of the things that don't matter, that aren't important. Because we're supposed to be making much of what is. And really, King Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom should overshadow everything else. Otherwise, look what he says. We're setting ourselves up to be judged as we judge others. This is what he's talked about before. When you do that, when you set a different standard than than Jesus does for those around you, You are a a judge of the law, not a doer of it. But there is only one lawgiver, and so you will be judged. He says, depend on God for the work that we can do. And letting God be God. Submitting ourselves under that. Like one woman said, I've got plenty of opinions Plenty I'd set straight. Plenty I'd do differently. And plenty things I hate. But all of that I do different. I'd do different. Down to the carpet on the floor. I concern myself with bigger things when Jesus is at the door. James says as an example of suffering and patience, a way way to do it right. Take the prophets. Just think back in your head if you're familiar with with all the stories that that came before Jesus, all those who pointed forward to Jesus. Take the prophets who, like the church today, suffer at the hands of a watching world, suffer in our own context, being being relegated to, to, to the to the obliques, being relegated to the to the to the strange, right? But what about in other, in other countries, even more so? I'm, being, I'm getting ready, right, next week, a week from Saturday. I'll be over in Amsterdam, and I've, there's 15 students, and, and, and a handful of these students coming from countries where they will go back after receiving their theological education for the good of the church of their homeland, they will go back and likely give their lives to a culture who will gladly take them. He says, look at the prophets. Look at the prophets who, who, like the church today, suffered at the hands of a watching world. 
but who nonetheless live for God while oppressed by those living for themselves. Take the prophets from Noah to to John the Baptist who put their hope not in the alleviation of their suffering in the present age, but in the once for all alleviation by God in the age to come. Take the prophets. Trust in God, but he's saying something more. He says, take the prophets also as an example of patience, this farmer patience, in that they understood that patience was depending on God as much for the work that they could do as it was in prayer for the work that they couldn't. Take the prophets. So while the prophets suffered and looked to God as their hope of having suffering made right, James says, what also? They spoke. Take the prophets. And James' point is this, that as followers of Jesus who are ridiculed by the world, we are to suffer with mouths wide open. As those who've heard God's word and are doers of God's word, that now we are called to also speak. That like the prophets before us, we are to bear witness in the midst of suffering, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of our faith being ridiculed and relegated to the sidelines. That we're to bear witness first to the lordship of Jesus. There's only one king. We're to bear witness to the certainty of his return, that the the king is coming back. And we're to bear witness that no matter what the world does to us, it is worth serving the king. Do you know that? Can you see that the, 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 the minute moment of your life Compares to nothing compared to what's coming after. That with that in mind, this means very little. What can they do? So that at the suffering, brought upon us by the world in any form or whether we just suffer we are to in that bear witness that God is God and we are not and thank God he is and thank God he sent his son because behold verse 11 we consider those blessed who remained steadfast Why? Because just like James has said to begin with way back in chapter 1, steadfastness in suffering leads us back to God Himself. It's God's way of leading us back, putting us through the pain to to, to, to throw us back into His arms. Just like with Job, he says. And you have heard, James says, of the steadfastness of Job. 
And you have seen, James says, in that, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job, who, who was a man, if you don't know the story, who suffered the loss of everything he owned and of every comfort he enjoyed, but who nonetheless put his hope in God. And in some day standing before God, and in some day someone standing with him. Job, who even though he believed he was suffering undeservedly, would not curse God even when he was encouraged by the wife he should have lost, but didn't. But who, because of the suffering, rather clung to God and continued throughout that long book to speak for God. So that in Job, James says, the purpose of God was put on display. A purpose that has likewise been clear from from way back in chapter 1 that God allows his people to suffer in all shapes and sizes. He allows his people to suffer and like Job to often suffer the loss of everything we hold dear. That losing everything, they might find the one thing that matters. And then bear witness, that they would bear witness to it, to our life with God Himself. When all else fades, what else is there? Patience is first about depending on God for the work that we can do, being doers of the word, having been hearers of it, and then afterwards becoming speakers of it as we live it out in our lives. Patience is about first depending on God for the work that we can do, the work that we're called to do. And second, it's about depending on God for the work that we can't like any good farmer demonstrating and doing so primarily through this thing called prayer. Which is what I think James is getting at even in verse 12. If you look at it, you may be slightly perplexed at what is, what is James saying in this or why has this topic come up. I think he's even talking about this in verse 12, but it's what becomes very clear by verse 13. When he says, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Because prayer is fundamentally, before anything else, an expression of our dependence on God. Our dependence on the one we pray to. It's, isn't it? Even from the very first mention, the first recorded mention of prayer, way back in Genesis chapter 4. Do you know it? Back after the fall when mankind was realizing for the first time that they couldn't deal with its effects when they couldn't undo what they had done that it says then at the end of chapter 4 when Cain had done his work in killing Abel and and Cain's Cain's further on uh, relative down the line had had done even more than that sworn to do even more than that when when the fall was getting out of control it says at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. 
This is what prayer is. It's an expression of our dependence on Him. First and foremost, before anything else, it is an expression of our dependence on Him. Our dependence on Him for the relationship to begin with. It is an expression of our dependence. Which is why it's not essentially about making oaths back in verse 12 because it's not about us making promises to God. Prayer is, to begin with, the heart of it is about throwing ourselves at the promises God makes to us. So do not swear. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Follow Jesus. And if you're suffering, pray. If you're suffering, pray. And James goes on to say, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Which is really just the other side of prayer, isn't it? It's not really all that different, just a different context. But it's the same reaction, a reaction of complete dependence upon God. That in the suffering, we depend on God if ever the suffering is to be set right. That we cannot do it on our own. That is the heart of prayer. And praise that if we at all see in this life, this life of brokenness and darkness, where it's so overwhelmed by the, the prince of the power of the air, that in this life we get even a glimpse of the world to come, we are to praise. Because isn't that God too? Isn't that a God thing too? Whether longing for heaven itself or getting a glimpse of heaven in the here and now, whether experience pain, suffering, or pleasure. This is what James calls being cheerful. That for either one, we're completely dependent on God. That for the one, God's the only one who can set it right. For the other, it's like Andrew Peterson puts it, don't you ever wonder why, in spite in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and the air is so full of song here. And didn't, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Thank someone. Praise someone. Honor someone. Worship someone. This is what James is talking about. A complete dependence and acknowledgement of our dependence on God for what we couldn't do ourselves we can't take heaven by the by the hand and and force it into our world it shows up because the God of heaven is breaking in on his own so pray and praise and likewise James says is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That may seem slightly bizarre to some, but there wouldn't really have been anything unusual about this in James' day, at this anointing with oil. Because he, see in, you see, in James' day, oil at times was used medicinally, but, but really among the people of God, it was more than that, right? It shows up all over the place. As something you did, taking oil, anointing someone or something, and devoting it to the service of God. 
You could picture, if you know the Bible at all, the times when this happened, the anointing of a prophet, the anointing of a, of a priest, the anointing of King David. He was anointed twice to be king. A committing him, a committing them to the service of God. Which is what James is talking about. Saying when, when their medical attempts have failed and there's nothing left to do, when, when somebody's life maybe is not, maybe is not completely doubtful that they're going to make it, but is certainly dim, they call the elders and anoint them. Not because it's some magical thing that, 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 that is going, going to, to work. And if it doesn't work, who got this wrong? But because you're committing a person into the hands of God. It's a declaration, a walking through the motions of saying, even in my heart and even in my actions, I am completely God's, that he will decide because my future is in his hands. He says, pray, praise. Let the elders anoint those with oil who who we can't do anything about. Now, it's interesting, though, that in verse 15, James uses a different word for sick. It's translated the same in English, but it's a completely different word in James's native tongue. The person anointed with oil in verse 14 is someone sick with a debilitating disease, a debilitating sickness of some sort, whose future is dim, but again, not necessarily doubtful. In verse 15, the one sick is hopelessly so and perhaps is spoken of in James' native tongue is perhaps even already dead. So the promises given in verse 15 are not necessarily attached to the anointing with oil in verse 14. God may heal. It is God's prerogative whether he does in the here and now. But the promise of verse 15 is so much more. Look at what it says. These promises that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The one who is already on death's door. That the the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. These guarantees don't seem to be about the here and now. Because we need something so much more than that. These guarantees seem to be about the world to come. That yes, anoint the sick. Go through that. We don't don't give that enough weight in our present Western context. It's all head for us, right? We don't go through the the physical motions of laying prostrate before God. We don't go through the motions of of doing physically, matching emotionally what we, our physicality. We don't do that enough. James says, do that. Here, though, the promise is that one day God will do what only God can. guarantee for the world to come. Not that God couldn't do it now, as James surely knew. Not that God doesn't 
ever do it now. But the promise is that God will do it for good someday. That God will someday do it for good. That one day, once and for all, the sick will be saved. That one day the dead will rise. And one day we will be forgiven forevermore. Which is a bit of a different animal, right? Than we sometimes want to make it. Especially when we're the ones on the deathbed. Or maybe even more so when it's our loved ones on the deathbed. And yet, we ought to understand that the promise, the promise here isn't something less than we long for, but is, as it has to be, so much more. That as much as the darkness and the pain of this world stings, as much as it stings to lose our loved ones today, those who die in Christ, which is the ones we ultimately stand with, those who die in Christ will eventually one day live again. And that, as Lewis said, it's somewhat useless knocking on heaven's door for earthly comfort because it's not the sort of comfort supplied there. But that likewise, those who place their faith in God and live in dependence on God will not in the end be disappointed. Like Elijah, James says who being a man with a nature like ours, a lot of comfort in that, being a man with a nature like ours, prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years in the here now, three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Stories told back in 1 Kings 17 and 18. But then, James says, he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So, too, those who live with patience, depending on God for the work that they can do and depending on God as much for the, for the work in prayer, for the work that they can't do, so, too, they will not be disappointed. And the rain here, and the talk of a harvest, is not meant to get us off on the track of figuring out our, our most recent ecological disaster. God can send the rain, and we can pray for rain. Not now, but we pray for it to stop raining. God can do that. But here, in this final passage, it's meant to bring us back to the beginning. That as the farmer waits for the early rain and the late 
for Elijah, a rain that came three and a half years later. So too the promises of God to bring the harvest is based on the fact that we've already seen the first fruits and it will surely come. That God will do His thing. For those who remain dependent on Him, even for the work that they've been left to do, as much as they remain dependent on Him in prayer for the work that they can't. That God will do it. So patiently we participate in the work of God. For us and especially for others, going after the ones who wander. This is where James leaves off bringing them back to Jesus. Why? Because we all start off wandering away from Jesus. Bringing them back as we speak like the prophets, as we trust like Job, as we stand firm like Elijah, and as we pray. And we look to God to answer those prayers like only God can. This is James' theology for life. That through the trials and tribulations that God puts all of His children through, allows all of His children to walk through, that they would, because of faith, grow them up to maturity, to completion, to dare James say it, perfection in the faith. That in the midst of the brokenness, there might be life. A harvest of life that we might find true life. Let me just suggest that walking away from the book of James and all of its practical implications that James does his duty in dragging out for us, there are at least two that I think we should walk away with today. Two, two implications about how we plow and how we pray. And let me suggest on the end of, of plowing that we are to do our part in participating in the work of God. That we are to speak at every opportunity. And not just every opportunity that comes our way. We are to take every opportunity. Look for every opportunity. Make everything an opportunity. To participate in the work of God. That lying on some beach somewhere should not be the end for any of us. Maybe sometimes there is a beach that comes your way. But lying on the beach by yourself as tempting, even for a guy like me as that would be, just to be by myself, that is not the life we are called to. We are to be about the business of plowing the field. But then, let us also pray. Because you can only do so much. You can only do so much. 
I was even reminded this week of um, one of the small agricultural tidbits that I remember from a biology class in high school, reminded of the farmers in Asia who bank most of their lives on the, on the, the, the cultivation of bamboo. But it's quite the process to, to grow bamboo. Are you aware of this? Do you know of this? I don't know. This was something we covered back then. Uh, it's quite the process to, to cultivate bamboo because you put seeds in the ground and you can water it and you can weed it, but you don't see any results one year in, two years in, three years in. You're still left with nothing. Four years Five, and then they shoot. And in a matter of days, really, you go from nothing to 30, 60, 90 feet high. One of the most amazing sort of transformations. We have uh, spruce trees here in the U.S. Bamboo, like, outdoes it in a matter of moments. And yet, who brought the growth? You plant the seed. You do your part. You water and weed a little bit. But so much of it is just waiting. And I would say from James, from the very beginning and his vision of what what the context of pain is supposed to be about in the believer's life, that that this is where God draws us back to himself and, and how he draws others because we all watch others wander off and do their lives a, a, a heap of pain. That so much of it is waiting on God to do only what God can. And let me encourage you that even for the rest of this summer, as you're traveling or, or off of the routine of life, this is a great time to put in place other routines. And your prayer life, I'm not talking about asking God for the latest thing you want. I'm not talking about even coming to God with the latest person you're mad at. I'm talking about coming before God with that bare prayer thing of just completely being dependent on you. This is a time you can come back to that. Of walking with God and talking with God and simply crying out to God to say, God, I cannot fix the world around me. I can do my part as I am called to do, but I cannot essentially fix it. I can't fix my kids. I can't fix my spouse. I can't even fix the mess that I'm making of my own life. And I need you. Let me encourage you in the weeks ahead, and even as the elders turn to uh, this series, Life Together, let me encourage you to not be sitting on the sidelines or, or just taking it all in mentally, but putting these things to work in your life and throwing yourself at the feet of God and God's mercy to do something that you can't do yourself. To plow and to pray. Let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I pray as even we walk away from James, I pray as we have walked through it and even in many ways, and many many of us have walked with each other through it, 
I pray, God, that you would do a work. I pray that you would do a work in giving us the grace to put our hands back on the plow, to join you in participating in the work, doing that for ourselves and for others. And I pray, Lord, just as James says, and encourages that we would be a people of prayer. That we would in the end be dependent on you not only for the work that we've been called to, the work that we can do, but dependent on you for the work that we can't. In Jesus' name I pray. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.